I'm sure that most of us watched the Super Bowl last Sunday. You know, the thing that I always love the most about the Super Bowl, it's not the spectacle, not the commercial, certainly not the halftime show. Let the record show. Okay, the thing I love about the Super Bowl is you've got the world's greatest players competing on the world's biggest stage. Uh, It's really an amazing thing. I mean, the very best of the best. Here in a few months, we'll, we'll do the same when we all watch the Olympics together in Tokyo. You're talking about the best of the best at what they do, competing for the greatest of all prizes. But you know what we don't get to see? In, in really a very short, maybe three-hour window, we don't get to see all of the incredible, grueling hard work that goes into that performance. We might be tempted to look at a great quarterback and just assume that he just shows up in the stadium great without any preparation. He's just naturally great. But see, what we don't get to witness are the months and months and months of weightlifting early in the morning, the stadium runs in 100 degree temperature, the, uh, the painful and difficult rehab from injury, the hours of film study, all of the grind that leads to the glory. And unless you've ever done that, whether it be in sports or any area of life, unless you've gone through some sort of grind, some sort of struggle to get to an accomplishment and achievement, it might be our temptation to think that some people just enter into the world great. But the truth is there is no glory without struggle. That's why we have catchphrases like no pain, no gain. No guts, no glory. If you want to be great, you've got to pay the price. And see, this, that's true for all of us. Whether you're an athlete or not, that's irrelevant. Anything that's really worth achieving requires some amount of endurance, discipline, pain, and suffering to get there. It just does. Uh, well, as we walk through Romans 8, y'all, we've been given quite a, a number of really just amazing statements and promises and blessings. I mean, one after another, Paul, who wrote Romans, Paul is just piling these things on. He's told us that we, because we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for our sin, not now, not ever. That we have been set free from the power of sin and death, and we've been... Uh, We've been uh, brought into life and peace through the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells in us. We are children of God. We have an inheritance that awaits us. Well, like we have these blessings beyond our imagination. But then we finished last week on a surprising and sobering note. And I'm just going to read these verses again, the very last two verses that we looked at last Sunday, Romans 8, verses 17, uh, 16 and 17. You'll see what I mean. Paul gives us a an assurance and a promise, but also uh, a sobering reminder. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, we were getting along so nicely until that word suffer showed up. Wasn't it great until then, until verse 17? Wonderful promises, incredible blessings, but then we have this this word that none of us like. And what's worse, Paul doesn't just talk about suffering as some sort of abstract possibility, but he tells us we suffer as a necessary condition. You notice this? We are fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also 
be glorified with him. That sounds a lot like no pain, no gain, doesn't it? No guts, no glory. Why does Paul tell us that suffering is necessary? That if we want the glory of Christ, that it comes through the sufferings of Christ? Well, thankfully, he devotes an entire section. And really, if you think about it, a lot of what we're going to see moving forward in Romans 8 is going to relate to the issue of suffering. All the way through the end, he's talking about it. Um, But right here, Paul's going to address the issue head on. He didn't just tell, he didn't just drop the bomb in verse 17 and keep on going. Uh, So we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 today. And before we get into the text, I just, I want to kind of lay some groundwork here because this is, this is obviously, this is the toughest topic for me to preach on. And this is the toughest issue in life for us all. Suffering is something that comes to all of us, oftentimes without warning, without fairness, uh, it's just a, it's a harsh reality of life that none of us wish were there and none of us like to deal with, but the scripture is not afraid of it. And so I want to I give you two things that the Bible affirms to us before we enter into Romans eight eighteen. The first is, y'all, the, the Bible never dismisses or ignores this issue. Never. In fact, the Bible is the truest, most honest book in the world when it comes to the issue of suffering. You can read through the Psalms, read through Job, read the prophets, read the Gospels, read Peter, read Paul. All throughout the scripture, suffering is never whitewashed. It's never disregarded. We're never called to pretend it away or or treat it like it's some sort of illusion that we should rise above. No, the scripture tells us that suffering is real and it's painful, and the scripture tells us the truth about these things. And second, y'all, something that's related to that, there is no version of Christianity without suffering. There's this fairly popular belief that says, if I love God and if God loves me, then bad things won't happen to me. Uh, One of the names we have for that, we call it the prosperity gospel, which says... God only wants health and wealth and happiness for us. And anything outside of that simply isn't from God. It's just not God's will. But y'all, listen, we, we reject that teaching. The Bible rejects that teaching. Because we don't, and, and it's, it's an appealing teaching, I realize that, because we don't like to suffer. We would never choose to suffer. You'd never choose it if you didn't have to. But we don't build our faith on wishful thinking. We build our faith on the truth of the word of God. And here's the wonderful thing. The truth of God's word is actually far richer and far greater than our temporary health, wealth, and happiness. Y'all, I want to say this as clearly as I can. God's great concern for you is not your temporary comfort and happiness. God's concern for you is to make you like his son, Jesus. We'll see that in a few weeks. That God is going to conform us to the image of his son. That's his eternal goal for you and me. And all the joy and all the glory that come along with Christ, of course, that's ours too. But it doesn't happen without hardship. Paul says suffering is necessary. If you want to be glorified with Christ, then we must also suffer with Christ. So Paul has just told us that. If we recoil at that, if we don't like that, that's understandable. But let's just see what he means here. Listen to how Paul explains this concept of suffering. It's probably bigger and a little different than what we might expect right here. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We see that. There is no comparison between our present suffering and our future glory. Now, when Paul uses the word suffering, uh, so often we see this word or this idea in the Scripture, um, and usually, and here specifically in Romans 8, its suffering is meant to be taken very broadly. Paul does not just have one specific thing in mind. He's talking about suffering in general. He's talking about something that encompasses all of what we tend to deal with in this world. So I think that Paul is including right here the daily struggles that we all know, daily anxieties, daily disappointments, that kind of suffering, what we might consider the smaller, more manageable stuff. But then, of course, he also is including the big stuff, the really big stuff, like grief and poverty and disease. Some suffering is smaller. We understand that. We all know that. We deal with it the best we can. Other suffering is just totally consuming, and it cuts our legs out from under us, and we have no resources to deal with it. Chances are everybody in this room has dealt with both, okay? But y'all, they all have one thing in common, whether small or great. All suffering, Paul has just told us, it's the suffering of the present time. And let's not whistle past that and miss it. What Paul is saying is that suffering is, for the Christian, suffering is by definition temporary. There is no eternal suffering for a Christian. There's no such thing. I want to I show you a parallel verse. When Paul gives us this, this affirmation here, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He tells us something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4. Now, Paul, understand, Paul was not immune to suffering. He suffered more than, than probably any of us ever will, both in hardship personally, persecution for his faith. But listen to what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, For momentary light affliction." is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You see why I call that a parallel verse? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Why not? For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now stop for a second. And ask yourself, does it kind of feel like Paul is diminishing suffering right here? Does it feel like maybe he's, he's minimizing real, true, sincere pain? When Paul says that, that our afflictions are momentary and light, wait a minute. Tell that to somebody who's dealing with depression or Alzheimer's. Tell that to a family who's miscarried. When, we, when Jennifer and I miscarried in 2009, it did not feel momentary and light. It, hurt, it still hurts. Is that what Paul's trying to do here? Is he trying to tell us to just get over it? It's not that big of a deal? No, listen. Paul, more than anyone, would have known better. He's not trying to diminish our suffering. What Paul's trying to do is he's, he's trying to show us just how dramatic the contrast really is. Notice what he says in that 2 Corinthians verse. He says, our suffering is momentary and light, but God's glory is eternal 
and heavy. It's weighty. He's setting up a contrast. He's not saying that suffering, well, it's not really all that bad. He's saying, no, by comparison, it doesn't even exist in the same ballpark. We're not talking about the same thing. It's a different category altogether. We have trouble seeing that right now because we live in the midst of our suffering and we have yet to experience our future glory. But Paul is trying to show us that once we have proper perspective, if we could see it all mapped out for us as we speak, we would see that there's no comparison. Our suffering, no matter how intense and painful it is, would seem to us to be a feather in the wind. And the glory would seem to us to be a mountain. They can't be compared. For us to understand, to comprehend, to anticipate the glory that awaits us, Paul says it's going to make our suffering seem like it was nothing at all. That's how much greater the glory is. That's how much more it weighs. It's not worthy to be compared. You see his point? Now that's an amazing promise. But it's a future promise. It's the glory to be revealed to us. And so we have to reckon with the pain of the present. And thankfully, again, Paul is not content to say there's a future promise of glory and then just move on. No, he wants to deal with reality as it stands. How do we live in the midst of our present struggle? Knowing the glory that is to come. And that's what he's going to tell us now in verse 19. This is a little confusing, I'm going to tell you up front, but it's spectacular. I'm going to do my best to show us how. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What on earth is Paul talking about? Uh, Y'all understand the problem of suffering is not limited to human beings. The whole creation suffers. The whole creation. And we see the way Paul frames it. He personifies the creation. He speaks of the world as if it were a person in order to make his point. He says the creation is anxiously longing to be set free from its slavery to corruption because the world itself has been subjected to futility. That is to say, the creation cannot, right now, it can't fulfill its intended purpose, the purpose for which God created the world. The world can't fulfill it. It can't reach the finish line. And what Paul's doing right here, he's he's commenting on Genesis 3. If you were to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3, when when sin enters into the world, God issues a curse. God subjects the world to futility, to frustration. We, none of us, not, not we as human beings, not the world at large, none of us can fulfill our original purpose. So even the world itself, and of course we know this, we can look around and see it, the world is perpetually in this, this ongoing cycle of destruction and decay and death. Things are not getting better, they're getting worse. 
And so we're told the creation itself groans. Isn't that amazing? The creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Now, once again, what? How, what, what's, what does he mean here? Uh, Paul is echoing something Jesus said in John 16. Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning their present sorrow as he was aiming for the cross and all the sorrow that would come as a result. Jesus said it's going to be like a woman in the throes of labor. There will be intense and terrible pain now, sorrow now, but joy after, a lasting joy that will come after. Sorrow now, but joy later. And that's the promise too. Paul is issuing that promise to the whole creation. The suffering of this present time is not final. God's ultimate desire and plan for the creation is not to scrap it, not to destroy it because it's so bad and corrupt, but to redeem it. A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, that's the end of the creation. That's the goal. And because the creation itself cannot fulfill that goal because of its futility and frustration, God has come to do it himself. That's what Paul is saying here. Therefore, the creation waits eagerly for that day. And when he personifies it, the image he's trying to give us here, it's like a person up on their tiptoes, craning their neck. Maybe you've been to a parade or you've been standing behind a crowd or maybe you stand behind a tall person in worship at Harvest Church, and you're standing on your tiptoes, you're craning your neck to get a look at something that you're hoping for. You're looking to the horizon for what is yet to come. Paul says that's what the creation does right now as we speak. Anxiously anticipating a day ahead of this day, the great day, when Jesus Christ returns and resurrects his saints. When Jesus Christ brings to fulfillment and consummation his great saving plan once and for all. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And so when, when Paul mentions back in verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us, we understand the whole universe is riding on this. This is not just a promise for you and me. The creation itself is groaning, doubled over. That's the idea here. In the pains of childbirth, waiting for what is to come and the joy that will accompany it. That's why the world's in the shape it's in right now, but that's not the end. The goal that it cannot reach, Jesus Christ will fulfill. And so all of creation is craning its neck, waiting for that day. Um, and y'all, maybe this helps give, give, give us a little perspective. When, when Paul talks about God's redemption, he's talking about something cosmic, here. Something that, that involves the entire universe, all the created order, not just you and me as individuals, but everything. Everything, all things will be reconciled and redeemed in Christ. Um, if, if maybe there's something in your heart that you question, can Jesus Christ really forgive me? I mean, I know he forgives sins, but can he really forgive that sin, that sin that nobody else knows about, that sin that I'm, surely, I'm sure has disqualified me, discredited me forever, that sin that really cost me and I can't ever get back what I lost? Can he really forgive that? Well, consider what Paul's saying here and what the Scripture says. Jesus Christ died for your sin, yes, but also the sins of the whole world. Cosmic significance here. 
And if Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, then how could your individual sins somehow be excluded from that? The greatness of his salvation. Nothing gets missed. You don't get missed in that. No sin left unforgiven. And maybe you wonder, according to the topic today, maybe you wonder, can, can God really deliver me from my pain? Is, does God really have a plan in the midst of my suffering? Well, once again, if Jesus Christ is going to deliver the universe and redeem it and fulfill its intended purpose, then can we trust him to deal with our individual struggles and pain? If he can do the far greater thing, then can't we trust him to do the lesser thing? If God's grace is cosmic, then that for us should give us perspective. And this is where we enter into the equation. Paul has just talked about the creation, right? Big picture. But now he whittles the the idea down to you and me in verse 23. And look at the parallel. What he just told us and what he tells us now. Verse 23. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Uh, If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, Paul says you have the first fruits of the Spirit. The idea behind that, it's kind of like a down payment. Uh, Remember something Paul told us back in verse 17. We read it a minute ago. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. A child and an heir are in some sense the same thing. To be a child means that you're fully in the family, that you have all the rights and the privileges of the family. But to be an heir means that there is a fullness that has not come to you quite yet. There's something, there's an inheritance that still awaits. It's guaranteed. That's what it means to be an heir. It's yours in a sense already, but it hasn't been fully Realized, And that's what we are as Christians. We possess the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He is our guarantee of all of God's promises. But there's a not yet associated with our faith. We live in the already, but the not yet. There's a glory still to be revealed. So it's promised, but it hasn't been fully grasped, right? And therefore, Paul says, right now, we groan. Just like the creation groans, he says, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And y'all, this is such a critical point. Christians are not pretenders when it comes to suffering. We don't ignore pain. We don't pretend it away. We don't slap a smile on and act like everything's fine Because if I'm a good Christian, then I should exist somehow above suffering. I should transcend the difficulties and the pain of life. No. Paul says we groan over it. Which means we feel deep down in our hearts, we feel the brokenness of our world. We we grieve over death and disease. We get angry over injustice, or at least we should. We lament over sin, not just the sin out there in the world, but the sin in here. It bothers us. Y'all, a Christian is not somebody who lives high up in the sky. Everything should be great all the time because I'm a Christian. 
Perhaps you were raised with that mentality or you adopted that mentality because nobody likes a sad sack kind of person who just walks around groaning all the time. And I'm not discounting joy when I talk about this, but we are in touch with reality. We don't walk around pretending that we're in heaven now. No, heaven is yet to come. We live on the front lines of real life. Things are not now as they ought to be. And therefore, just like the creation, we stand on our tippy toes and we crane our necks, eagerly anticipating that day, the day when Christ will redeem and reconcile. Right? That's okay. That's right. That's groaning and it's appropriate for the Christian life. But here's the, here's the kicker. As we stand in the midst of a broken world, a darkened world, darkness out there, darkness in here, let's be honest about it. Yet we have a fixed point of reference that is not of this world. And this is the unique privilege of being a believer, that we don't look at the problems of the world convinced that we have to solve the problems of the world here in the world. We don't have to look at worldly means and temporary solutions to try to solve our cosmic problems. So I'm I'm telling you guys, the Christian gospel is not, well, if we could just elect the right people... And if we could just enact the right policies, and if we could just establish the right social programs, and the right education, and the right socioeconomics, then we'd solve our problems. We know better. That's not our fixed point of reference. Christ is. Now, listen, that's not to say that elections don't matter. Elections matter. Policy matters. As Christians, we fight for justice and righteousness in this world. We are the ambassadors of Christ here and now. We are not just waiting on the train to come pick us up, okay? We live here and now, and how we live matters. Make no mistake. But we don't root our hope here, and that's Paul's point. We're not eagerly anticipating an elected official to set us free. We're not eagerly anticipating a cure-all drug for cancer. We pray for that, and I hope we do, but that's not our hope. Our fixed point of reference is Jesus, because the cosmic problem demands a cosmic solution, a divine solution, and so we fix our eyes on him, and therefore, Paul says, we have hope. Not a false hope, not fingers crossed that things will turn around, but we have genuine, lasting hope, and we see it in verse 24. Paul says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Paul has already mentioned this, that there is a glory yet to be revealed, meaning that God, what God has for us, what God has promised to us, cannot yet be seen. It can't be fully taken in. It certainly can't be enjoyed yet. It's it's an inheritance that is to come. And so we hope for what we do not yet see. And in that hope, we've been saved. We've been sealed. We've been guaranteed. It's just not yet. Listen, I want you to listen to how the Apostle Peter uh, speaks these. He really gives us the same message. This is from 1 Peter 1, but I love the way Peter frames it and how it complements what we just read. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You'll see what Paul and Peter are saying, that there is something that we are guaranteed by faith. It's reserved for us. That's why we never root ourselves and our hope in this world. We are aliens and strangers, exiles, Peter says, in this world, because this world ultimately is not our home. There is a, an inheritance reserved. Peter and Paul use the same word, inheritance, which represents the riches and the glory and the true life and grace of God forever, undiminished, cannot fade, cannot be lost. And it is ours even though we cannot yet see it and take hold of it. And y'all, this is what has to shape our suffering. This is what shapes Christian suffering. Uh, Not empty catchphrases that we tell ourselves and each other to band-aid up our wounds. And I'm just, I'm just going to say this as an encouragement to us. Don't tell people everything happens for a reason. That's a very small comfort, perhaps even an insult to those who are really struggling. Don't tell people things are going to get better, things will turn out okay. How do we know? I'd like to believe that too, but we don't know. Some people who get sick die. They don't all get well. That doesn't diminish the promise. That doesn't diminish God's sovereign grace. And so we don't have to make little human temporary, you know, catchphrase solutions to these problems. No, we have a genuine solution. The solution is that because we know what awaits us with perseverance, we eagerly anticipate it. We hope for it. Y'all, the only thing that's going to give you endurance and strength and courage to face whatever comes your way is the indwelling grace of the Holy Spirit who comforts us today, who strengthens us today, and who guarantees tomorrow. And when I say tomorrow, I don't mean actually tomorrow, but that day, our future. If we know what awaits us, if we know that it is certain and guaranteed, then a Christian can face almost anything. That doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean almost anything, not almost. It doesn't mean that we diminish the severity, that we somehow just, you know, smile our way through it. No, we walk through it acknowledging what it is. We groan, we're doubled over, we fall. But when we fall, we fall upon the rock of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us the ability to suffer well. It's the Spirit's affirmation that the suffering of this present time, no matter how intense, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Um, y'all in line with that? I, you know, every time I preach on suffering, uh, I, I worry, honestly, I worry that I'm going to come across as insensitive, that I'm going to minimize something you've been through without intending to, but that I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about it in a way that, that doesn't um, honor the reality of what you've been through or what you're going through. Uh, if I do that ever, please know that that's not my intention. Because I know, I know y'all, I know a lot of y'all, and I know some of the things you've been through and some of the things you're going through now, and it's heartbreaking, and that's just the stuff I know about. 
Uh, I know all of us deal with the ongoing daily suffering of disappointment and sickness and and anxiety, things like that. Um, I also know that some of us in this room have been handed uniquely awful circumstances, uh, things that we wouldn't wish on other people. Uh, And so I, on my part and on Harvest Church's part, I hope that you never hear in this room, from this pulpit, that you never hear from my mouth, oh, you know, things are going to be okay. Uh, We don't give pat answers to these problems. But here's our encouragement. And I I want us to take this to heart, especially for those of us who experience really, truly difficult circumstances. Maybe you're going through one now. I want you to remember something we looked at in Romans 8, 17, the very first thing I quoted to you in the scripture. Remember the condition that Paul gave us. Paul says, we are fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And I want you to hone in on a specific word that Paul uses three times right there. It's the word with. With. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are glorified with Christ if we suffer with Christ. Now, Paul could have said, if we suffer for Christ... And that is a legitimate category that we may be called upon to be persecuted, to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, to suffer specifically because we are Christians. It happens. But that's not the word he uses. Paul says we suffer with Christ. And y'all, think about what that means. That means that Christ himself has suffered. Jesus took on flesh and lived among us, which means he entered into our groaning for himself. He's not aloof to our groaning. It's not like he doesn't know what it's like. No, he's entered into it. Jesus experienced the world as it really is. All the darkness, all the grief, all the loss, all the pain. He's known that for himself. He's walked that road. And so I want to encourage you to consider this in whatever issue you deal with and whatever suffering befalls you. Listen, if you've ever been betrayed, so has he. If you've ever been treated unjustly and unfairly, so was he. If you've ever been broke, so was he. If you've ever felt rejected and felt alone, so did he. If you've ever been pushed so far beyond your own capacity and your own resources that you didn't think you even had the ability to get out of bed, so has he when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat tears, sweat drops of blood. There is not a speck of our pain that Jesus does not know for himself. Y'all, when the scripture calls us to suffer with Christ, We do it with the understanding that Christ first came to suffer with us. He has blazed the trail ahead of us. And he didn't just suffer with us, but we know he suffered for us. That the ultimate suffering Jesus experienced on the cross, a suffering that we will never touch even on our worst day, that Jesus Christ suffered it for you. So that this promise might be secured. That to those who suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. Because he suffered, that promise is sure. 
See, Jesus didn't suffer so that you and I wouldn't suffer ourselves, but so that when we suffer, we would be made more and more like him and that we would rest on the promise of glory in his presence. Y'all, what kind of God would do this? What kind of God, who has no obligation to suffer himself, would enter into it anyway that he might save us whom he loves? Y'all, there is not a molecule of your pain and struggle that Jesus hasn't known for himself, that he has not felt, that he has not tasted. And because he passed through his own suffering into glory, the same promise belongs to those now who trust him. Y'all, there is coming a day when the eternal weight of God's glory will make our present sufferings a distant memory. I don't know this for sure, but I have to, I have to assume that there will come a day 10,000 years from now when we'll all be in heaven saying, now what was that called? Cancer? Heart attack? What was that? We'll have no category for suffering because it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is ours in Christ. And until then, until then, may God give us the grace to faithfully, eagerly anticipate, to endure, to persevere, and to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Because in him we have not just forgiveness, not just salvation, not just the enjoyment of God's blessings today, but we have hope for a certain future. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is our, um, our deep need this morning to come to terms with this, um, that the world has been subjected to futility, that the world is filled with darkness and sickness and tornadoes and disaster. And Lord, we have to come to terms with our own reality that our bodies are breaking down, that we are weak, that we are subject to all of those things and they are more powerful than we are. But Lord, we don't despair. We don't despair because of what we've read today in your word, the word of truth, that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the world, has assured us the glory of his grace, his redeeming power forever. So Father, would you give us the grace this morning to be very honest and real, to groan, to suffer well, to stare it in the face, much as we hate it, much as we would never choose it, if it's what you've called us to walk through, Lord, that we'll walk through it with eyes open, with courage, even as we acknowledge how frail we are, that we would patiently endure because of what we have in Christ. The promise, Lord, of a of, a, of an inheritance reserved in heaven for us, undefiled, unfading. Um, Father, will you teach us this, this morning um, perspective that however intense and however awful um, our circumstances are, they are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Lord, where we, are, where we are prone to doubt that, Lord, encourage us in faith to see Jesus Christ. If he died, if he suffered, and if he was raised to glory, then the trail has been blazed and we will soon follow. We will be glorified with him. Lord, give us the strength to suffer, knowing, Lord, that that is our future certain promise. Lord, for those of us right now who, who are struggling to the point of, of just despair, thank you, Lord, that your word tells us the truth. This is not in our heads. This is real. But in Christ, we have a real solution. We have a real Savior. And so give us hope, Lord, hope that transcends this world. And we ask it in his name. Amen.